In late 2001, Timothy Wicks, a 48-year-old house painter and aspiring musician living in Hales Corners, a quiet little suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was leaving town for what he told friends was the opportunity of a lifetime. He said that he was heading north to Canada for what sounded like a dream job, a music gig that paid $800 per week. His friends described Tim, a gifted drummer who studied music at Berklee College in Boston, as laid back and friendly. Though Tim had never hit the big time with his music, he still harbored dreams of playing in front of a crowd. This would be, he told people, the most money that he had ever made playing professionally. So on December 26, he packed up his drums and headed north. But a few weeks later, when none of his friends had heard from him, they started to worry. Tim didn't have a steady girlfriend and was unmarried with no children. So he didn't seem to have immediate family who were checking up on him on a daily basis, but he did have a social circle of people who he spoke to regularly. So they called the Hales Corners Police Department. The case landed on the desk of Hales Corners detective Kent Schoonover, who headed up the investigation into Tim's disappearance. He told Dateline, quote, My first impression is that we don't have a case. An adult citizen, at least here in Wisconsin, has a right to disappear if they want, end quote. Detective Schoonover had no way of knowing at that point that the investigation into what happened to Tim Wicks would lead him to a tale of friendship, betrayal, stolen identity, and a headless, handless corpse found in a frozen river. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. When Tim Wicks's friends didn't hear from him after Christmas, they started to get concerned. Some of them did seem to remember that he'd said something about leaving town with a friend of his named Dennis. According to court documents, Tim's brother-in-law told investigators that on Christmas Eve, Tim told him that he and his friend, Dennis, were going to Canada to get a job doing his jazz drumming. Apparently, Dennis wanted Tim to keep the job a big secret. Detective Schoonover was part of a tiny police force And according to journalist Gina Barton of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, who wrote a five-part series of articles about the case called Fatal Identity, which she eventually turned into a book, he was pretty much the only lead detective. The persistent small-town detective, snowy surroundings, weird circumstances, and connection to Fargo, North Dakota, soon started to make Tim's disappearance sound like a plotline from the TV show Fargo. While investigating this case, I got pretty obsessed with Detective Schoonover, Not in a creepy way, I just really admired his dedication. He said in a YouTube interview with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, where he discussed working on cold cases, that he'd been working in law enforcement since he was 18 years old. He said the key to cracking a case is figuring out why criminals commit the crimes they do. He said if you can figure out the why, you can sometimes change the future. And the plot twists in this case are just as crazy as anything invented in a Hollywood writer's room. Detective Schoonover went to Tim's apartment, and eventually spoke to his building manager. The building manager repeated a version of the same story that Tim had told his friends, according to court documents. Tim had paid his rent for January, and on Christmas Day, he told his landlady that he was off to Canada to play a gig. He seemed happy, she said. And she had another potential clue. 
She told the detective that Tim had left a number behind, just in case she needed to reach him. She handed the detective a card. Written on it was Dennis and Tim Wicks, along with a telephone number. So, Detective Schoonover called the phone number. He told the Oxygen series, A Lie to Die For, that at this point, his conversation with the man who answered the phone and identified himself as Dennis took a turn for the bizarre. First, Dennis told the detective that he didn't know any Tim Wicks. And when Detective Schoonover asked who he was, he gave a fake name, Dennis Johnson. Detective Schoonover was immediately suspicious. So he did some checking and figured out that both the name and address that Dennis had given him in Bismarck were fake. He traced the phone number to Fargo. Then the detective went back to Tim's apartment, looked again for any sign of foul play. But everything was neat and orderly, as if Tim had gone on a trip and could walk in the door at any minute. The detective could have stopped there, but he couldn't ignore the feeling in his gut that something was wrong. So he dug deeper. He went to Tim's files, flipped through his tax returns, and found the name of the tax preparer, Lotus Financial and Dennis Gady. The name Dennis had come up again. Suspecting that this guy could be the same Dennis who he talked to on the phone, Detective Schoonover ran a check on him and found out that Dennis had multiple warrants out for his arrest. So he called police in Fargo. He was transferred to a detective there named Tammy Link. And she told him that she had nothing on a Dennis Johnson, but she did have information on Tim Wicks. According to the Fargo police, Tim Wicks was there and was a suspect in a local embezzlement case. The police there said that Tim had embezzled around $10,000 from the company that he was working for. According to court documents, this included a $4,000 check made out to petty cash that had gone into an account in the name Tim Wicks. Tim had only been working for the company for a few months, but the employees became suspicious. And at one point, one of them snapped a photo of Tim Wicks on some pretense. Detective Schoonover was pretty sure that this guy did not sound like the Tim Wicks that his friends described. His Tim Wicks was an average-looking man in his 40s, medium build, white hair, around 5 foot 8. The man in the photo was overweight, balding, 6 foot 3 and over 300 pounds. He was a giant. There was no way that these two pictures were the same person. Police compared the pictures and quickly deduced that the man in the photo, the one calling himself Tim Wicks, was actually Dennis Gady. Then, in early January 2002, a few weeks after Tim disappeared, a survey crew working near the Menominee River found a torso, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Shortly after that, on January 16th, a head was found with a bullet in it, this time in the Menominee River near Niagara, Wisconsin, about 35 miles upstream from where the torso was found. It was frozen solid. Detective Schoonover kept looking for Tim, and as part of his research, he searched John Doe's that were found nearby. This took a lot of dedication. Often, as you may know from listening to this podcast and others, it's not like there's one big screen that pops up like on Criminal Minds and instantly finds a match. It's painstaking detective work. It can involve going through multiple mounds of paper files in different states and different counties. In one report, he saw the description of the head and torso even though it was technically a Wisconsin case since it had been found over the border. He wondered, could this be Tim Wicks? But to know if it was Tim, he needed dental records. He had no idea who Tim's dentist was. So he went back to the apartment again and looked for anything that could lead him to those dental records. 
and he got a break. On the fridge, held up by a magnet, he found a reminder card for a dental appointment. So he called the dentist, and soon he had Tim's x-rays in his hands. And using those records, authorities confirmed that the head and torso belonged to Tim Wicks. Police had determined that the headless, handless John Doe that they found was Tim Wicks, who had been missing for several weeks. And they knew that the man who had been posing as Tim Wicks was wanted felon Dennis Gady. But who was Dennis Gady? And how did Tim get mixed up with him? According to Dateline, Tim met Dennis in 2000. At that time, Dennis was working as an accountant. Tim needed someone to do his taxes, and he responded to an ad that Dennis had posted, offering to do taxes for $25. According to the Oxygen Show, A Lie to Die For, at the time, Dennis lived in Milwaukee, too, and he and Tim struck up a friendship after they found out that they were both drummers. In part three of Gina Barton's investigative series into the case, she covered Dennis's past in an article titled Living on Both Sides of the Law. This is impressive work, by the way, because there's not a lot out there about Dennis Gady. She wrote that in 1987, Dennis owned a garage in Milwaukee, and he was married with two kids. At some point, according to Dennis, he made an investment in some used truck parts that turned out to be stolen. So he cooperated with authorities, giving them information on some members of a biker gang who were his customers. In an ironic twist of fate, at some point, Dennis actually took classes in law enforcement at Waukesha County Technical College. In 1991, the Marshfield Police Department hired Dennis to work undercover drug cases. I've seen this a lot with red car criminals. Gary Shockey, for example, had a short-lived career as a bounty hunter, and serial killers have done ride-alongs with the police and worked as security guards. Anyway, Dennis's law enforcement days were numbered. He didn't stop crime, he just started doing drugs. Dennis made promises to the police, according to officers who spoke to Gina Barton, but he didn't deliver. The partnership ended when Dennis pleaded guilty to cocaine possession and obstructing an officer. He served 90 days in jail. In Gina Barton's article, the police chief is quoted as calling Dennis a blowhard. He said, quote, the only conviction he got us was himself, end quote. Dennis later divorced and moved to Sparta, where he opened a restaurant. But trouble seemed to follow him wherever he went. Whatever happened, Dennis seemed to always picture himself as a victim. He was just trying to escape the biker gang or help someone who was in trouble by giving a convict a job, and then that person just happened to escape. But he kept racking up felony charges. He moved to Winnipeg, Canada. But in 1995, according to Gina Barton, after a biker gang member found him, he realized that he needed a new identity. So he stole the ID of Luke Gagnon, a Canadian boy who died in 1981 at the age of seven. Dennis became Luke, got a birth certificate and national identity card with that name, and lived as Luke for four years. Dennis, as Luke, actually did fairly well. He went back to school, became an accountant, and was in a local rock band called Window. He married again and had a son. What happened to his first two spouses and children isn't clear. There seems to be no info out there about them, I guess it's just one of the many mysteries surrounding Dennis. But by 2000, he had burned his bridges as Luke, so he crossed back into North Dakota. And it was there that in 2001, he met Diane Frug. At the time, Diane was working as a beautician, 
She was a single mother trying to rebuild her life after a series of bad relationships. Her young son Joshua and daughter Rachel fell in love with Dennis, and so did she, especially his kind and caring nature. Unlike some of the men she had been with in the past, Dennis didn't seem like a candidate for multiple restraining orders. He was good to her kids. He took them to Red Lobster. So when he proposed just a couple of months later, she said yes. They were married at a local courthouse. Investigators say that at this point, Diane was unaware that Dennis was hiding some dark secrets, including multiple felony convictions. Shortly after that, Dennis dropped a bomb on Diane. He told her that he was a wanted felon. He was facing charges related to aiding a felon in an escape in 1995. Dennis was actually convicted of those charges, and he was out on bail. But he told Diane that he couldn't go back to jail, where he would have a target on his back, he said, from the biker gang. He told her that they would have to skip town. The bottom line was, he had to get out of Milwaukee to avoid going to prison. Incredibly, she went along with the plan. She loved Dennis, and she believed in him. So Rachel, who was a teen at this point, went to live with her father. And Diane took Joshua with them on the run. Diane later told police that Dennis told her his friend Tim had given him permission to use his identity. So she said she agreed and started calling her husband Tim. They bought a farmhouse in the tiny town of Gardner, North Dakota, population 85. Dennis got a job as a bookkeeper and office manager at Compressed Air Technologies. If the story had stopped here, it could have been a messed up, but sort of happy ending. But soon, Dennis was back to his old tricks. Employees at Compressed Air started noticing that money was missing, sometimes small amounts, sometimes larger checks. And when they confronted him about it, he had no credible answer. Then one day after Christmas, he went out to lunch and never came back. The company's owners started looking deeper into their financial records. When they realized how much money was missing, according to court records, around $10,000 in all, including health insurance claims Dennis made as Tim, they called the police. And it turned out that around the same time that Dennis's co-workers were figuring out that something was afoot at work, he got a call from Tim. Tim told Dennis that he was beginning to think someone was trying to steal his identity. Someone was using his credit cards, he said. So, of course, he went to his good friend Dennis to ask for advice. On January 23, 2002, shortly after Tim's headless body resurfaced, detectives searched Dennis's home in Gardner. They sprayed luminol, which reacts with the iron in the hemoglobin, to detect blood. And while the kitchen floor looked clean to the naked eye, once they turned the lights on and started spraying, it lit up like a Christmas tree. Since luminol can also react with bleach, detectives suspected that there had been either a lot of blood, a lot of bleach, or both, spilled on that kitchen floor. There were dig marks in the dirt outside, which was frozen solid. As if, police said, someone tried to dig a hole with a backhoe. Detectives started a massive manhunt for Diane and Dennis. At the same time, detectives were digging into Tim's bank accounts and finding more clues. Tim's savings account and CD account had both been cleaned out, and the bank had records of someone, after Tim was dead, identifying himself as Tim and asking for access to the money. As Tim's tax preparer, Dennis had access to all the information that he needed to raid Tim's accounts. He would have had his social security number, probably his mother's maiden name, and known all of the answers to his security questions. In total, Dennis stole around $16,500 from Tim. He used the money to buy an RV. 
Detectives could see that after Tim was dead, his credit cards had been used. But they left the lines of credit open, hoping that it would help them nail Dennis and Diane. Detectives may not yet have everything they needed for a slam-dunk conviction on a murder case, but they definitely had a financial fraud case. On January 30th, 2002, police issued a warrant for Dennis's arrest on charges related to identity theft. And an arrest warrant for Diane was issued for taking her son out of state in violation of a child custody order. At this point, police just seemed to want to get them in custody so they couldn't flee or do any more damage. Dennis and Diane spent several weeks driving around in the RV that they had bought with Tim's stolen money until police caught up with him on March 4, 2002, at a campground in Lincoln, Nebraska. Dennis was taken into custody, but police still didn't have enough to charge him with murder. So they charged him with embezzlement and insurance fraud since he had received health insurance benefits, reportedly for his diabetes treatment, under the name Tim Wicks. Dennis still insisted that he hadn't stolen Tim's identity. He said that Tim had willingly allowed him to use his information. Meanwhile, Diane pleaded guilty to the charges against her and served six months in prison. Dennis pleaded guilty to theft, theft by deception, and insurance fraud. He was sentenced to around four years in prison, but he continued to insist that he had nothing to do with Tim Wicks's death. And police had no direct physical evidence. They knew that they needed more. So while Dennis was behind bars, police methodically, step-by-step, step, built their case against him. They spoke to Dennis several times, but he stonewalled them. So, Detective Schoonover turned to Diane. Now, Diane was madly in love with Dennis, and she stayed loyal to him for a long time. But Detective Schoonover was patient. He built her trust. He kept going back. In a low-key way, he kept her talking. And eventually, this paid off because he convinced her to open up. But when Diane did confess, it wasn't at all what the detective suspected. She told him that Tim had sexually assaulted her and that she killed Tim in self-defense. Now, Detective Schoonover did not believe for a second that the mild-mannered drummer would have done this. But he didn't yell at Diane or get confrontational. Instead, he just kept the dialogue going. He was getting closer, and he hoped that she would come clean. This often happens in cold cases, by the way. We always focus so much in true crime on physical evidence, smoking guns, trails of blood. But new information is often the key to cracking these cases. This means convincing someone who has information but hasn't come forward yet to reveal what they know. Making them want to talk to you rather than telling them they have to is an art. Prosecutors and investigators believed that Dennis was continuing to manipulate Diane from behind bars. They were sure that he told her to tell police that she had killed him. Maybe Dennis told her that she could claim self-defense and get a shorter sentence. In reality, they believed that Dennis just hoped that Diane would take the fall for him. As in so many red-collar cases, following the money was the key, and the path led directly to Dennis. He was the one who stole Tim's identity, and the only one, according to detectives, who had a motive to kill him. Then, police got a break from an unexpected source. They did an interview with Diane's son, Joshua. Her son, now four, had been telling his therapist about his friend, Tim, and he said straight up when asked that the man he called Daddy Dennis had shot Tim. Detective Schoonover never gave up on Diane, even after she was released from jail in November 2002, and he no longer had a captive audience. Police knew that she was the key to cracking the case. Finally, in February 2004, 
police conducted a video interview with Diane in conjunction with the FBI. And in that interview, Diane said that she was ready to come clean about what really happened to Tim. She said that around December 23rd, Tim called Dennis. He was talking to Dennis about the fact that someone had been using his credit cards and stolen his identity. And of course, unbeknownst to Tim, that person was Dennis. The phone call, she said, seemed to be the catalyst for everything that happened next. After that call, she said, Dennis hung up the phone, turned around to her, and said, Tim's gotta die. That's when Dennis invited his friend up on the pretense of prepping for the fictional music gig. She testified to this fact. According to Diane's testimony cited in court documents, it was around that time when Dennis also told her that, quote, he wanted to take Wicks to Canada to play a music gig and he might have to kill Wicks, end quote. On December 26th, Dennis headed to Milwaukee, picked him up, and drove back to Gardner. She said that at around 8 p.m. that night, she took her son up to bed and left the two men downstairs, catching up, smoking pot and drinking. She said that she heard a noise. Then she came downstairs and saw Tim lying on the kitchen floor. Diane said that at first, in shock, she thought that Tim had passed out from too much partying. Then, Dennis told her that he shot him. Diane told detectives that she stood by, horrified, as Dennis put a plastic bag over Tim's head and suffocated him. She said that Dennis told her to help him. So, she helped Dennis drag Tim's body out to the shed and let the body freeze. Then, she helped Dennis clean up the mess, pouring the bleach on to eliminate the physical evidence. Then, Dennis did something that only a cold-blooded, red-collar criminal could do. He used his dead friend's credit card to rent a backhoe. His plan was most likely to bury him in the backyard. But the plan hit a snag once Dennis realized that he couldn't dig in frozen ground. Red-collar criminals, like other psychopaths, display narcissistic and grandiose traits that make them smooth talkers. But those same qualities can also make them overconfident in their abilities. They seem to think that they're master criminals, when in fact they're making all kinds of amateur mistakes. And this was definitely evident here. Dennis told the detective that his name was Dennis. He let his friend leave a phone number behind that led straight to him. And he had no plan for burying a body in North Dakota in January. If this was a movie like Fargo, it would be a dark comedy. We would laugh at Dennis because the circumstances of the case are so absurd and he's so incompetent. But in the real world, it's a tragedy. At some point, Dennis decided to take Tim to his dad's cabin in the woods. So Diane and Dennis rented a U-Haul moving truck and started driving toward Michigan. They had put the body into the truck, with Joshua also in the cab, by the way, and went into the woods. But Dennis couldn't find the cistern that he'd planned to use. So they drove back to Milwaukee, and at some point, in the pitch black, Dennis stopped the truck and made the decision to cut up the body. According to court records, Dennis decided to cut off Tim's hands so there would be no fingerprints, and his head to eliminate dental records that would help ID the body. Diane told police that she stayed in the front seat while Dennis dismembered the body. When the sewing started, she just turned up the radio I know this woman had a difficult past and was undoubtedly manipulated by this man, but it's really hard to imagine the level of denial that she was in at this moment. Dennis asked for her help again, so she left her young son in the car and grabbed the body. She helped Dennis throw the torso over the guardrail. Then Dennis went into the woods to get rid of the hands. Diane actually said in the police interview 
that there was blood all over her at this point because she had grabbed the end of Tim's body where his head had been. Apparently, the torso missed the water, but they left it there. Then Dennis went into the woods to dispose of the hands. Back in the car, Diane said that she begged Dennis to turn around, go back, and face justice. His motive, according to Diane, was the fact that they had stolen from Tim and that if Tim found out about the fraud, they would lose everything, including the new life that they had built together. So the couple went back to Milwaukee, where they withdrew money from Tim's bank accounts and used Tim's money to buy an RV. Diane told investigators that two days after the murder, on January 4th, 2002, they returned the U-Haul in Fargo. A few days later, they found the note that a deputy sheriff had left regarding a welfare check on Tim Wicks. That's when they started their road trip. Detectives kept following the money. Dennis used Tim's credit card on a cross-country shopping spree. He used the card to rent equipment to dig a hole next to his house in Gardner, to buy items at Fleet Farm in Fargo, to rent the U-Haul and to purchase fuel in Iron Mountain, Michigan, and to buy gas. Detectives reviewed surveillance camera footage from Fleet Farm, and according to A Lie to Die For, they saw Dennis and Diane on camera, buying items that included gloves, an axe, burlap sacks, and gardening shears. It seemed odd, one of the detectives pointed out, to purchase gardening shears in the middle of winter when the ground was frozen solid. Dennis was finally charged with Tim Wick's murder in 2005. He pleaded not guilty. His trial began in April 2006. At the trial, Diane testified against him. She told Dateline, quote, I want to apologize to the Wicks family that it's taken me so long to come forward. But hopefully, the end result will be what we all hope for. Tim was a good man, and he didn't deserve what he got, end quote. Dennis did not take the stand. But his lawyers put forward an alternative theory. They suggested that Diane had been the killer. On the stand, Diane admitted that, yes, she had said at one point that Tim raped her. But she said she had done that because Dennis told her to make those statements. Dennis's lawyers claimed that Diane shot Tim. They said she was the ringleader. Dennis's only crime, they insisted, was helping to cover up the killing, according to court documents. Diane's testimony was crucial because, again, there was no direct physical evidence. Detectives found no evidence of value in the U-Haul, which had been re-rented before they could search it, according to police reports and search warrant affidavits. There was quite a bit of physical evidence at Dennis's house, including a mop head with brownish stains on it that police believe could be blood. But it couldn't be conclusively tied to Tim, according to a search warrant. Dennis appeared to have done his research when it came to cleaning blood and using bleach to destroy DNA. Police found ammunition, but no guns. Diane later told police that Dennis had told her to throw the murder weapon into the river, which she said she did. In an interview with the Journal Sentinel in 2002, Dennis said, quote, I did not do this thing. Something happened, and I'm not sure what, but I had nothing to do with it, and the truth will come out, end quote. But the jury didn't buy that story. When it came to catching this red-collar criminal, in the end, the paper trail was just as important as the blood trail. They found Dennis guilty, and in June 2006, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. According to the Associated Press, Dennis appealed his conviction. His attorneys asked to have his conviction thrown out entirely, due to the fact, they claim, that prosecutors improperly brought up Dennis's prior legal troubles. 
They also claimed that Diane's testimony was unreliable because according to court documents, quote, Diane was shown to be a dishonest person and a liar. And because she confessed to the shooting, the evidence is insufficient to convict him of murder, end quote. In court, Dennis continued to deny that he had stolen Tim's identity or that he had anything to do with killing him. He said that he had just borrowed Tim's identity as a temporary measure. He said, quote, Timothy Wicks gave that identity to me to use. He was helping me out, end quote. The North Dakota Supreme Court rejected the appeal in 2007. They basically said that they didn't buy Dennis's story that Diane had pulled the trigger. And they said the circumstantial evidence overwhelmingly pointed to motive for the murder. And again, the financial motive led straight back to Dennis. Dennis was the one who knew Tim in the first place. He used his name to get a job, buy a car, get a driver's license, and buy a house. Court documents read, quote, that evidence demonstrates a motive for Gady to kill Wicks and tends to connect Gady with the shooting, end quote. Diane divorced Dennis and reverted back to using her maiden name. She died in 2012 at the age of 46. Diane's daughter Rachel was interviewed on A Lie to Die For and said that she believed that her mother was madly in love with Dennis and believed in him and that she thought her mom was deeply remorseful and came forward because she wanted to do the right thing. Dennis is currently behind bars at the North Dakota State Penitentiary, serving his life sentence. According to the North Dakota Corrections and Rehabilitations website, his estimated release date is January 1st, 2100. A couple of things have really stuck with me about this case. First, when I can, I like to end the podcast on a call to action. So here's one for this week. Don't give anyone, a spouse, family member, or accountant, carte blanche access to your financial information. A lot of banks now and some other companies are offering alternative security questions. So pick one, something that only you know, nothing involving maiden names or pet names or street names where you grew up or cities where you met your spouse. All of that can be figured out. Something you have never blogged about or written about on social media. Pick that answer and keep it private. Secondly, again, I want to give a shout out to the killer police work of Detective Kent Schoonover. As someone who's lived a large part of my life alone, single, and far from family, it's amazing to think that he was an advocate for Tim Wicks when no one else could be. Dennis may have believed that because Tim had no immediate family, he would be an easy target. Detective Schoonover made sure he wasn't. I wish that every cold case had a detective as dedicated as he is. Even with the great police work, there are still a few unanswered questions in this case. A lot of Dennis's past is still a mystery, and with his history, I'm sure that there could be more victims out there of financial fraud or something worse. Also, Tim's hands have never been found. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?